where I recommend that you kind of look inside yourself and say, what do I love the most? What gets me excited about coming to work? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, I'm excited to introduce our guest, Dr. David Yusem. Dr. Yusem is a professor of radiology and the vice chairman and associate dean at Johns Hopkins. He has published over 300 scientific papers and is the author of Neuroradiology, The Requisites, the case review series, and Radiology Business Practice, How to Succeed. He's also the former president of ASNR and one of my closest partners because he is a member of the MRN Line Advisory Board. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Yusim to the podcast. Uh, Dr. Yusim, welcome. Great to be here. So we'll dive into um, a lot of topics today. I'd love to hear your thoughts on academic radiology and the field in general, get into exciting areas in neuroradiology. But for those who are not familiar with you, tell us a little bit more about your background. What drove you to academic radiology? Sure. Well, um, even back in high school, I kind of had an idea that I wanted to be a neuroradiologist, someone who studied the brain. And I was fortunate enough to get into a six-year combined BSMD program at University of Michigan and uh, cut off a couple years of uh, my training and then joined the radiology residency at Johns Hopkins and then went to University of Pennsylvania for my fellowship in neuroradiology. So I was sort of at age 16, sort of uh, had a sense of where I wanted to go, which made it a lot easier to make some choices when you sort of know your mission uh, as early as that. And um, frankly, I've been one of these people who has loved all aspects of the academic world. That is, you know, we usually think about the tripartite mission of uh, clinical service, education, and research. And I add the fourth part of the stool, which is um, leadership development. And um, I've been all in on it and have been very happy with my career choices and um, look forward to uh, more years ahead. So wait, back up a step. I definitely did not know what neuroradiology was when I was in high school. I don't think I even knew what a radiologist was. And I had an uncle who was a radiologist in high school. So how, how did you figure out that, that that was something that you wanted to do? So I think part of it was having a father who was a physician. My father was an OBGYN. And to be honest, he was a little bit jaded about the doctor-patient relationship. He said that, you know, patients are a little bit fair-weather friends. And as soon as, you know, they get sick, they turn against the physicians. So he kind of early on was directing my brother and myself towards being a doctor's doctor. So by that, he meant interact with doctors in your daily life, not uh, with the patients. And my brother became a pathologist and he was three years older than me. So a little bit, uh, you know, I had that uh, going for me that I knew what was going on and I became a radiologist. So we both followed my father's advice and, you know, mostly dealt with physicians to physician communication throughout our careers. Fascinating. So then you decide you want to go into neuroradiology. You get on the accelerated track through undergrad in medicine. Um, how did you end up at Hopkins? So I'm originally from Baltimore. I'm one of the few Johns Hopkins faculty who actually 
considers Baltimore their hometown. I was born in Sinai Hospital in Baltimore. So for me, it was sort of a coming home uh, phenomenon after six years in Ann Arbor and the cold weather there. And Hopkins had an excellent uh, radiology residency. The truth is that this was at a time when there was not a match and you interviewed and you were offered a position sometimes that day. And what happened for me was um, I actually had a preference for going to University of Pennsylvania, but Stan Siegelman, who was the radiology training director that day said, hey, you know, I'm offering you a position to be a radiology resident at Hopkins, take it or leave it, you've got 12 hours. And I contacted University of Pennsylvania and said, uh, where do I stand on your list? And they said, well, you're up there, but you're not guaranteed. So I took the guarantee, went to Hopkins and always had the idea of going to University of Pennsylvania sometime in my career. And fortunately for my fellowship in neuroradiology, I joined the University of Pennsylvania group that was pretty much at the top of their game. And this is in 1988 to 1990. So at that time, UCSF and Penn were the major players in neuroradiology in, in our field. And uh, did you consider staying at Penn or, or always knew you wanted to come back home? No, I actually stayed at Penn for eight years on faculty. So I was there from 1988 to 1998. And in 1998, Elias Zerhouni, who would become the NIH director, was the chairman at Hopkins. And Nick Bryan was leaving as the division chief of neuroradiology in 1998. And so Zerhouni contacted me and said, come on home. Uh, I'd like to make you the neuroradiology training director at Hopkins. And um, it was awesome coming back to Baltimore and I'm, I've been very happy. Did you have your kids while you were in Pennsylvania and then you moved yes. them down? Yes. Got it. Got it. Okay. So then you came to Hopkins for this great opportunity. And on top of that, you decided it was time to get an MBA. Talk us through that decision, why you get an MBA and what was the experience like? Yeah, so what was interesting was that Zerhouni actually had a period of time when he was in private practice building groups in Virginia, and then he was recruited to become the chairman at Hopkins. So he had this experience about private practice radiology, and at the time that Hopkins was under Zerhouni's command, uh, they had a relationship with um, ARS, American Radiology Services, which was a large private practice group, and Zerhouni was on the board. And when I became the division chief, he said, you know, you really need to know more about the business of radiology. It would be very helpful for you to get an MBA degree. So over the years from 1999 to 2003, I went to night school one night a week for four years to get my business of medicine MBA degree, which is very much directed towards the area of interest of medical economics. And um, it was very, very helpful. Zahuni then put me on the board of ARS as well. So I could see how private practice radiology was being conducted. And frankly, ARS had a, a VC takeover, you know, maybe three years into me being on the board. And so I understood the ramifications of that. So all of it was um, very nice. And it also helped me better run the neuroradiology division at Hopkins understanding the implications of revenue versus expense and how to um, manage that. So what were the big business decisions at that time? As I understand it, when you got to Hopkins, they were not making that much in profit. We talked a little bit about this in the past and that you helped them turn it around. 
what were some of the business challenges that they were facing trying to build up their practice? Well, I think that uh, neuroradiology was exploding at the time. MRI was becoming more and more used in other circumstances besides the brain and the spine. So we build a pretty strong head and neck MRI uh, service, which, which helped out. We expanded our um, platform as far as emergency department imaging. So we had an ED MRI scanner that was available for stroke imaging, for example. So there was, in general, just an explosion in radiology at that time that I benefited from. But it was also management of things like outside films. We were reading a lot of outside films at the multidisciplinary conferences and the tumor boards for free. And I was able to convert that into a practice where the clinicians were comfortable submitting those images either in advance or um, at the time for formal interpretation. And we were able to bill for that uh, service. So that also was an area of growth. And the neurointerventional services, which were also under diagnostic neuroradiology at the time, also were exploding as well, particularly around spine intervention. It was at the time that a lot of the vertebroplasty and kyphoplasty trials were being done. So for spine pain in the elderly with compression fractures, there was a, a large uh, growth of work there. So um, I think I told you that Zerhuni kind of made a deal with me and he said, all right, you know, whatever profit you can make, I will allow you to keep 25% of the profit in the division for you to buy uh, magnets, buy coils, hire research faculty, hire research fellows. And that was sort of a pretty nice incentive. And so in 1998, when I arrived, the neuroradiology division had had a annual profit of $100,000. And at the peak of my stewardship of neuroradiology, we were making $1.4 million in profit. So that translated to about $350,000 that was available to me in, in a discretionary fund. And that allowed me to you know, fund pilot projects for research in neuroradiology. It allowed me to hire neuroradiology research fellows to do some of the um, work uh, that we required and to expand our teaching ability with various uh, button boxes for interactivity. So it was a wonderful experience. And fortunately, the MBA allowed me to do a better job, I think, of managing the division. So clinically, so much has changed in neuroradiology in your time since entering the field. You talked a little bit about some of that already, but can you give us a brief history lesson? What was the field like when you joined versus you know where it is today? So when I first joined in radiology, 1984, there were very few centers that even had MRI scanners. Uh, Hopkins was one of them, University of Pennsylvania. So they were, it was just being promoted. And over the course of the first decade of my career in radiology, uh, MRI became the primary means of evaluating the central nervous system, the brain and the spine over CT scan. So that was, you know, tremendous. And what has happened over the course of time is that the scanning has gotten much, much quicker. The anatomy and the resolution has gotten much better, both on CT as well as MRI scanning. I mean, now we do 0.5 millimeter fixed CT scans. It's just incredible. And that has allowed us to, you know, obviously see pathology more clearly. 
uh, identify where it is located more clearly. And it's also required us to understand the anatomy of you know, all body parts much more precisely. In the brain, when I started out, it was what lobe was the lesion in. Now we talk about gyri and tracts and you know, cellular uh, content, et cetera, uh, with uh, diffusion-weighted imaging. So that's really been a big expanse. And of course, everyone's talking nowadays about the impact of artificial intelligence on imaging, which I you know, personally am embracing you know, as much as I can, the activity that's being done with artificial intelligence. It's really amazing how fast the technology was deployed. In one decade, you said we went from only a few centers had scanners to now they're in every hospital in the country. Yeah, well, I mean, you've been in the business. You know about how quickly the um, chip manufacturers have uh, advanced things and how much more rapid the computer processing speed is and the more and more uh, memory uh, capabilities. So it's very much, you know, like we talk about NASA with the hand-derived calculations being made to, on, on how much acceleration to get it out of the lunar orbit or whatnot that were being done. And now, you know, we have computers that just help us so much. So I think that that has played the largest role as far as the advancement of the technology. There's a great Bill Gates quote, I believe. We generally overestimate what can get done in a year and underestimate what can get done in 10. And I just, you know, hearing that, because I've been in radiology now, you know, in the business of radiology for half a decade, and the pace in AI has been maybe slower than many would have thought half a decade ago but maybe things are really starting to accelerate. Obviously, I mean, things like what Viz are doing and, and others around stroke treatment have proliferated and are probably you know, being used in every center in the country now. If not, they will be soon. So I guess that's an example. But do you think of that as as impactful to patient care on a magnitude basis as the deployment of MR? Is that a fair comparison? No, I don't think it is. will be as impactful as it that addition of a new modality that looks at the anatomy in a different way. However, I do think that whether it's in five years or 10 years, more and more scans will be previewed or reviewed by a computer-generated algorithm that will only increase the accuracy of the radiologist. So it's already been shown at the most recent American Society of Neuroradiology meeting at the Mount Sinai group from New York put all of their CT scans of the cervical spine through a fracture detection algorithm. And I don't know the denominator, but the numerator was that the computer algorithm identified 29 new cervical spine fractures that the radiologists had missed. And um, sure, there were also some false positives, but that ability to have a second read, we would all love to have a second read, whether it's a human or a computer, frankly. I would, I embrace it. I mean, I would, you know, after reading, you know, 60 cases in an evening shift and being somewhat tired, I would love to have something or someone double check me and make sure I didn't miss a cervical spine fracture or, or stroke. And I believe that 
as the technology advances and computer speeds get faster, we'll be able to put every case through a computer algorithm and it may indeed help us to detect things that we might otherwise miss. So I'm very bullish about AI. I don't think it will eliminate radiologists or substitute for radiologists, but it will supplement radiology and radiologists in a very positive way for patient care. So you talk a little bit about HIFU. What is HIFU and how is it going to apply in, in neuroimaging and why does that have you excited? Oh, so um, actually across the city in, at University of Maryland, uh, Dheeraj Gandhi, who is one of the neuroradiology chiefs over there, has been working with uh, high-frequency ultrasound, which is what we're talking about with HIFU, and using MR guidance to non-invasively treat diseases. And the issue has always been with use of ultrasound is that you have to make these tremendous calculations about the skull's shape and thickness to understand how you can get a deep lesion treated with ultrasound um, because of you know, the penetrance that is approximated with the skull and, and the thickness of the skull. And that's been pretty well worked out nowadays such that we can treat deep gray matter structures and ablate things in the brain. And Deerage has shown me videos and I've seen at meetings, patients who come in with disabling tremors of the hands such that they can't even you know, drink a glass of water because it's spilling from the severity of the tremor. And the patient goes into the uh, magnet for a HIFU therapy and two hours later comes out with a steady hand. I mean, it's that rapid, it's that effective. Wow. And Deerage tells me that you know, they're using this not just for the treatment of tremors, but now trying to ablate things like seizure foci or other um, dystonias that can occur in the motor system. And I'm just, you know, amazed. I mean, right now for the treatment of metastases, micrometastases, small metastases in the brain, we use stereotactic radiosurgery, which obviously is a radiation-based treatment. Think of you know, using ultrasound instead, where we don't have that secondary potential damage that can occur with radiation to the skull, et cetera. So it's very exciting. I wish we were doing more of it at Hopkins. And uh, Deerage formerly was a faculty member at Hopkins. I don't know why we let him go, but he's done some great things at University of Maryland, as well as the whole team there. Obviously, this is a team project. So uh, yeah, I'm, whenever neuroradiology moves from the diagnostic realm to the therapeutic realm, I think it's very exciting. That has happened with stroke and thrombectomies and thrombolysis. HIFU is, is another area where I see great future. What are the barriers to adoption? Is it still just kind of in the lab at the moment? No, I think it was FDA approved. So that's no longer considered lab-based. It does require the expertise and the physicists and the equipment and the coordination within the magnet. Imagine in the magnetic field, you're applying ultrasound, which obviously has its own um, metallic components to it. So those are some of the challenges of widespread implementation. Got it. You also talk a lot about individualized workup 
using genetic data more proactively alongside imaging data. Where is this being done today effectively? So we know that based on your genetic profile that you can get it, I don't know, 23andMe or whatever the various commercial DNA analyses are at this point, uh, you can identify those genetic markers that increase your risk for certain types of illnesses. One classic one is the BRCA gene and, and breast cancer. So obviously a person who has a genetic predisposition should be screened more frequently than someone who does not have that genetic uh, predisposition. Some of this is being done in utero and you can identify whether the infant might have a predisposition to a particular genetic deformity. And fortunately, some stem cell-based therapies are being developed to counteract that genetic predisposition or that genetic mutation that leads to the disease. So I think it's a little short-sighted to expect to implement a widespread CT screening lung cancer program to the general population when you can potentially identify those patients who are at genetic risk of lung cancer and more effectively screen for those patients that have higher risk. Obviously, you also have all those environmental risks, including smoking, that will predispose to something like lung cancer, and that would be another set of patients. But to do a widespread general population screening doesn't seem to me to be uh, worth the uh, expense and effort. You mentioned breast and chest. What are the areas that you're researching or that people are excited about in neuroradiology? I think that in neuroradiology, most of the effort has been in trying to develop therapies against the genetic markers for brain tumors. So nowadays, it's, it's fascinating to me that the diagnosis of a brain tumor is generally made by sending tissue off to immunohistochemistry laboratories that come back with representation of IDH mutation, whether it's wild type or mutant, and whether or not the patient has a deletion of one of the uh, chromosomes. And that is how they are characterizing cancers rather than looking under the microscope the way my brother did and looking at the cells under H&E stain and saying, oh, this looks like a uh, glioma or glioblastoma. Now it's so much is being done by the immunohistochemistry and genetics. And at the same time, you have brilliant people who are working on therapies directed towards those aberrant genes or chromosomes or cell surface markers. So all these drugs that have AB at the end of them, you know, obviously are, you know, monoclonal antibody drugs. That's all amazing. I mean, when I think back in uh, medical school, it was, you know, just remembering the DNA sequences and the, the nucleotides was, was difficult. Now you have to know what tumors <laughs> have which aberrations of genes and it's, it's overwhelming. Got it. So making sure I understand one thing that's changing a lot in neuroradiology is once you've identified cancers, the actual treatments available to patients are rapidly advancing, providing a slightly more effective drug for me than a different patient based on both my internal genetics and also the genetics of the tumor 
are going to lead to more personalized recommendations on the treatment side and also better outcomes. Yes, well stated. Trying my best here <laughs> to, to stay up to speed with you. Shifting gears a bit, you know, you've had a really interesting career in academic radiology, as we've talked through a little bit here. One of the things I'm hearing a lot from the next generation of radiologists, several of my friends and my wife's colleagues, and maybe they are in residency or fellowship considering careers in, in academic radiology, or maybe they're, you know, third or fourth year attendings are finding that the volumes are increasing so much that it feels like private practice. And I love the way you described the trifecta of academic radiology. You know, people go into it because they like to teach, they want to do some research, and they want to maintain their clinical practice. But when your clinical practice is, I think, 100% of your time, if we're being honest, and then everything else is time on top of that. It's, you know, working a few extra hours that day or that night. People are, are really struggling to keep up and pushing back, and rightly so. I think from what I'm hearing. And then on top of everything, so they're working that amount of, you know, 150% of their time. They're not getting to do the work that they want to do. And then they're also getting paid in some cases, 50% less than their colleagues that might be working at the private practice down the street, um, working similar hours or, or working less. So what's going on in, in the field? And, you know, A, is that a fair representation of reality today? Or has it always been that way and people just are lazy and need to suck it up and work harder? Um, or is there really something going on here? What's your take? So I think there's a lot of factors that are going on. Number one is that we have a shortage of radiologists, in part the influence of COVID and people taking early retirement, and in part what people call, you know, referred to as burnout and feeling like uh, they're not getting joy from their work. So we have less radiologists in general in academia, and it seems as if the gap between compensation in academics versus private practice has uh, widened. So those factors, I think, are true. What to do about it? So in part, we have become so much more efficient, thank goodness, because of PACs and because of voice recognition dictation and because of transferring image data sets so much more rapidly through you know faster connections etc so there has been a natural ability to read more cases when uh, you have technology on your side at the same time i've been sort of the squeaky wheel about academic radiology over rewarding clinical productivity. And um, this is something that has been kind of universal in that the chairpersons of radiology and academic radiology have put a carrot out for many of the radiologists in the, you know, that if you read X number more per day, you will get additional compensation. And in part, their rationale was, yeah, there's this gap between us and private practice, we can reduce that gap if we incentivize more RVU production per person, and we could do it with less people, so we're gonna save some money and you know, all the additional expense of the benefits if we have less people. So we'll incentivize more RVU production among our academic radiologists, and they can get a higher salary that way. 
a higher total compensation package. So it's not that they're being mean, um, they're addressing one aspect of the gap, but at the same time, you know, when I was on clinical service 10, 12 years ago, I could be away from the reading station for two, three hours in my nine hour day and get academic work done and do teaching, you know, in, in a conference setting and come back to it. And the trainees would have, you know, previewed some cases. The current academic radiologist has their butt planted on the seat pretty much for the entire nine hour shift. And they're trying to keep up with the work. And at the same time, they're thinking, well, if I read five more cases today, you know, I will get that bonus that's being dangled in front of me by the um, chairperson. They may still get their academic day. And it, it is not to say that academic radiology programs are not providing academic days off of the clinical service. At Johns Hopkins, the guarantee, if you will, is 20% academic time. The problem is that after you've been working four days straight at that pace, when you're academic day, you're kind of zoned out and just trying to get a breather and catching up on the emails and you know the clinical stuff and going to conferences, et cetera your productivity is not as good as it used to be when each day of the week you had an hour or two hours per day to work on your projects and keep it going and keep that flow as opposed to one day a week with a week gap in between. So I think that's the danger that's occurring in academic radiology. At the same time, we have more research faculty of the PhD variety who are advancing the, the field by things like AI, et cetera. Those are usually not MDs. Those are usually PhD faculties who are doing the, the great work in advancing with you know, new pulse sequences, new modalities, new AI applications. So radiology is advancing. It's just advancing on the backs of the PhD faculty rather than on the MD faculty, in my opinion. It's a tough place for radiology to be. And you described it well, the radiologists stuck in their chair all day long, trying to keep up with volumes. Their research suffers, their teaching suffers too. You'll hear lots of residents say, oh, you know, I didn't even get to do a readout. The attending just kind of back read me all day and signed off on my cases. And it's up to me to be proactive and maybe go look at the, the studies, you know, later that night to see if they made any changes, but I'm not actually getting any time sitting side by side because it hurts my productivity. I'm not so sure I agree with you that the productivity demands are driven by the radiologists wanting to make more money as much as it's being driven by short-staffed reading. It's a combination. Because, I agree. It's a combination. You know, it's, it's all fine and good to say, hey, look, like I'm just gonna, I know you want me to read a hundred scans today, but I'm going to read 50. You can't leave the patients sitting there waiting uh, you can't leave the referring physician sitting there waiting. And if you don't have enough chest radiologists in your team, you don't have enough chest radiologists on your team and you got to meet the imaging demands. Um, I don't know if maybe what happens is more private partnership where, you know, like kind of what you had 
in the early days of Hopkins, where a lot of the scans are going to a private group and you just pick the scans that you think are the most appropriate for the academic setting. I'm not sure, but it's it's very challenging and, and I'm nervous because some of the, one of the benefits I've had in this role is talking with hundreds of academic radiologists who love to teach. And a lot of them are saying, I don't know how much longer I can stay in this environment. And maybe I'll just go into private practice. Well, to go back you know, to our earlier conversation, some people are hopeful that AI will assist us in getting through more cases more efficiently and maintaining our accuracy. Again, I think it's unlikely that AI will be the sole interpreter of the studies, but it may be that it gets to that point where it's that good that we can have the low yield cases being reviewed by uh, the computer generated um, reports. I don't know, but yeah, I'm I'm hopeful about radiology's future. I, I do think that clinical research by radiologists has suffered in the past 10 years, but I think the chairpersons will get it right and, and make a correction. I've been a big advocate in my own department about using incentives to reward academic work, to, to reward research. I, I my proposal was if you write a paper or you're involved in a paper each quarter that you should get a, some sort of reward each quarter for that type of productivity. So that way it balances out all this money that's being thrown at you potentially for reading more cases. Yeah. So you're a prolific educator. You've, I think we said, written over 300 papers and taught hundreds of residents and fellows, maybe thousands now. Um, you literally wrote the book, No Radiology Requisites, that I think is is being used as a monitor stand somewhere in my, my house, because you know my wife <laughs> doesn't like to read, uh, which is part of the inspiration behind MRI Online. So why did you decide to join forces and start teaching on MRI Online? So um, let me just make a quick credit, and that is that the No Radiology Requisites was really the brainchild of Bob Grossman back in, when I was actually second year faculty at University of Pennsylvania. And, uh, he and I were partners in it for the first three editions. It's now, um, he signed off to me with the fourth edition, but um, I give a lot of credit to Bob Grossman, who was a great mentor to me. So that said, why MRI online? So I think that there are some strengths that MRI online brings to the table. Number one is that it is full DICOM based so that the students get access to the entire study to actually simulate reading cases in a way that improves patient care. So that's number one. The second thing, and, I, and I'm not sure whether this was your brainchild, but having little snippet based educational tidbits I think is really important. The, the goal is to have something, you know, on a video that runs between three to seven minutes as a separate entity. And I think that that has been very prescient in that, to, frankly, the attention span of the current learners in radiology and medical school and maybe high school, I'm not sure, is more amenable to listening to a three to five minute YouTube video or snippet in MRI online, rather than listening to Dr. Usum blab on and on and on and on for an hour on brain tumors. So I think that model really appealed to me. Uh, the second part was that MRI online came of age during an era, the COVID era, where 
live educational fora were being avoided because of health reasons. And so we were able to, through MRI online, convert a lot of people to understanding that you can learn just as effectively by remote as so close that you can smell Dr. Usum's coffee breath, right? So I think that that's been uh, very important. And for most of the material in MRI online, it's case-based. There is lectures, and we certainly have noon lectures that are outstanding by great names in the, um, in the radiology field, but much of the mastery courses and the fellowships have been case-based. And I think that that also appeals to the practical nature of reading cases that you get the experience and also listening to the expert in the field, how they approach a, a particular case. That's a lot different than talking about the epidemiology of EBV-related mesopharyngeal carcinoma, et cetera. So there have been a lot of positive steps that MRI Online has implemented that have appealed to me. And the other thing is clearly it's much more of an international audience that you can approach with a educational form like MRI Online. The, the truth is that I've had great experience with teaching people from Malaysia and Australia in my fellowship programs through MRI Online that I would never have had that opportunity before. And it's just a great feeling to be able to have impact in areas of the world where um, potentially we have a lot more to offer. Yeah, the uh, you started with cases and then you went to short videos. The initial inspiration was actually the short videos first. You know, I'd been inspired by what Khan Academy had accomplished over the years. They pioneered the format of short online videos as a you know one teaching point per video is a really effective means of education and also more interactive videos, less less didactic, less PowerPoint, more learn by doing, kind of sitting at the chalkboard with you know the best teacher you could imagine. And the other thing that was clear through Khan Academy was the global reach and, and how you could reach a really broad audience and the power of the internet to democratize access to information. And so you think back to our earlier example of MRI and the rapid deployment of physical technology, it happens fast. The water will flow, so to speak, the dollars will follow. And, and so as you deploy all these technologies um, around the world, how do you also deploy the education and disseminate the information? And so the internet is this just amazing tool for that. And then the best way that we've seen on the internet to do that is to be short, these short format videos. And then there's this company called Code Academy, which is really cool. It, it's a way to learn how to code. And the way they work is you go online to codeacademy.com. At the time, I think the, the websites change over time, but you could literally type in code right there in the browser and it would give you feedback on if you're doing it right. And it made learning how to code really accessible to someone who'd never coded before. Like, wait, I, I can program. You get a dopamine hit really quickly. <laughs> and, and then that's been propagated in other places like Duolingo is a really good example where people can learn languages and you open the app and it instantly has you speaking in another language and getting points and feeling good. And so we're like, what is, you know, what is the, the same thing in radiology, and that's where the DICOM cases came in. So of course, you know, radiologists need to see cases, they need to scroll through cases, they need to experience going through those cases. Otherwise, it's not real, it's not approachable. And then that that all came together over time. So I have a question yeah, for you, Daniel. Yeah. Over the course of time, will AI be doing the teaching on MRI online or 
will it be still be human? <laughs> you, you know, that's a good question. Maybe AI will do the grading for the fellowships as, as, a, as a good starting point. One place that AI is really helpful in education is recommended content. So we're building out case challenges where you do lots of cases and then you, you answer some multiple choice questions. But what we're trying to do is based on how you're performing, how do we guide you to the right content? That might help you reinforce that learning um, that you need. Um, and I think machine learning has been proven, you know, in algorithms like Netflix to, to be quite effective in that regard. And I don't think it's too complex. I think that's something we could get to in the near term. But actually, I do wonder, like, why are you a good teacher? Like, what makes you a good teacher? How did did you start out a good teacher? Were you just, you know, uh, the smart kid who loved explaining things to everybody and you could do it in a funny and approachable way? And, and then that was it? Or did you have to work at your craft? Like, how, how did you get good at teaching over time? Well, I guess I would start with mentorship. Um, Bob Grossman, who was the division chief of neuroradiology when I was a fellow, had a very quirky sense of humor, and he was great at it. And the whole neuroradiology, the requisites, some people referred to it as the joke book of neuroradiology, because we tried to average a joke a page. So humor, <laughs> humor definitely humor definitely is part of it. Prior to that, I was in a res radiology residency program with Stan Siegelman. Stan Siegelman probably is the most brilliant man I've ever met. He was like the Mr. Peabody, if, if you remember Sherman and Peabody cartoons, where you know there was this one person who was just so, so smart. And he was just very clear in how he taught. Over the course of time, I recognized very early that we needed to get more interactive in our approach to education. So I literally did buy 50 button boxes and I had this whole antenna system that I would cart around and fly it, you know, it was weighed like 50 pounds with me whenever I would go to do some educational things because I recognized that, you know, you need to get audience participation for them to maintain their concentration on your work. So I learned pretty early about interactivity with, with the audience. So I think that's helped me. One of the people that influenced me greatly was Jenny Collins. So Jenny Collins, who preceded me as one of the uh, lead consultants for MRI Online, is a brilliant educator. She would teach about teaching at the AUR meetings, the University of Radiology meet meetings, and uh, meetings of the Rankin Ray Society. And I would go to her lectures and take, I would take notes and do what she said. She was, she um, turned me on to online interactive polling, as opposed to having to bring all my button boxes. I was able to do it, you know, online based on some of the suggestions that uh, Jenny recommended. And she's just a very clear speaker and makes points well. And I learned a lot watching her talk and teach about teaching. I also was fortunate to get an educational scholar two-year grant from the RSNA, uh, which funded me 75K a year for two years to develop a business of radiology curriculum, which is online. And part of the money that was provided to me was for me to take classes in being a better educator and longitudinal mm -hmm. curricular development, et cetera. So I also credit the funding by the RSNA as in from, it was actually Toshiba Education Scholar Award uh, that I was given. You know, sometimes it's 
as important as having a good voice. If you have a monotone voice, it's going to be hard to really get your audience excited. I learned from Lori Lovner, she was the queen of repetition. Hmm. She was the queen of repetition. <laughs> she would use repetition to make points and you know it, you just would stop you would say oh she repeated that it must be something important she was the queen of repetition i learned a lot from laurie in how she used repetition in education that i think was was a, a great tidbit um so there's been a lot of people who have influenced me and i've tried to take the best from everyone else humor bob grossman clarity Jenny Collins, repetition, Lori Lovner, interactivity, the internet, et cetera. All those things, I think, combine to improve your ability to teach in a more effective way. MRI Online has taught me too, you know, keep it short, little snippets. <laughs> Don't be long well, it's, <laughs> it's it's very different teaching online than teaching in person, where you, you know, in person you get the nodding heads, the, the feeling of laughter. You can know when you're doing well. Um, teaching online can be hard. And so you need to be a lot more cognizant of, of those things. And our team tries their best to help make it clear when, you know, when things are moving well. So you developed this neuroradiology fellowship. You mentioned it briefly. Give us a two second on what it is. And then I'd be curious to hear, you've now probably had a few hundred radiologists from around the world pass through it. What are the biggest mistakes you find people make before they start your remote fellowship? And then improved that over time? Sure. So the Neuroradiology Remote Fellowship consists of a 10-week program in which the students are given five cases per week to look at and create their own radiology report. I then would look over the reports and grade the reports and correct the reports and give the students feedback regarding not just the diagnosis and the differential diagnosis that they've provided, but also how they've expressed it in the report to the, uh, their clinical colleagues. Uh, each week, I also would have an hour of what we call it office hours, where I would go over the five cases if, if that was the best use of the time or answer questions about specific cases. So they would have the opportunity to directly question me about the cases that were shown that week. So in answer to the second part of your question, which is where do they get the most benefit or where were they making mistakes that they then improve over the course of the 10-week period? Um, I would say that tightening up their differentials is one component of it, but I'm a firm believer that you should state outright what you think is the number one most likely diagnosis and then follow it with a statement you know, the differential diagnosis includes. So adhering to that philosophy of, of making a commitment, you know, too often, I think the radiologists, the impression of the report is a repeat of the description of the lesion. So the impression might say, you know, five centimeter enhancing lesion in the right temporal lobe. That, that's not an impression. That's the results and the findings. And I would emphasize, what do you think it is? What is the most likely thing it is? And you know you can couch it in probable or possible, et cetera, but it's better to say, you know, five centimeter region right temporal lobe most likely representing a metastasis. The differential diagnosis includes, you know, tumefactive multiple sclerosis and a uh, primary brain tumor. So 
requiring the students to commit to a specific diagnosis and then include a differential diagnosis, and when appropriate, what are the other studies that would be helpful in sealing the diagnosis, i.e., you know, lumbar puncture to evaluate for oligoclonal bands or, you know, for multiple sclerosis, for example. So I think that having that sort of format of here's my best guess, here's my differential, here's the workup that I would recommend, I think it has been helpful to a lot of people. With regard to the pathology, I think that skull base lesions and cervical spine trauma are the areas where people have the most anxiety. Um, again, we talked about missing cervical spine fractures and the workup thereof with regard to the AI potential benefit. But the other thing is all this new anatomy that we have to know because we've got such high resolution imaging, we can see the cranial nerve three, we can see cranial nerve five, we can see cranial nerve six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And now we have to look at the case with that level of detail and come up with number one, detection of the abnormality and number two, interpretation of what it means. Yeah. Answering the clinical question, it sounds like sums up where people start versus, you know, where they need to get to, if I can state it that simply, and the help that you provide through your fellowship, giving them the confidence to say, hey, you've seen these, you, you know what it is and, and here's what it is, but you're put yourself out there. It's a great service you're providing. All right, I know we're, we're, we're at time here. Before you give advice to young radiologists, you know, you're 16 again. Do you think you'd be going into neuroradiology? I've been very happy in my field. It's been very stimulating. It's been a field that has changed over time and continued to evolve. I would go into neuroradiology in a heartbeat. I've been very happy and I'm interacting with the trainees and the research fellows has been the greatest joy in my life. When, when I look back on my accomplishments, I often say this, those accomplishments that I'm going to be most proud of are helping, for example, people from abroad get their green card through research that they've done with me and be able to be citizens of the United States and contributing to the medical community in the United States. That's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. To the extent that I've helped people pass their boards through the, <laughs> the requisites or any of my teaching, that's always when people come up to me and say, you know, I, I read the requisites before I took the boards. Thank God. You know, I think <laughs> that's always a good feeling as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I would I would for sure go into neuroradiology. I'm very happy. So what, what advice are you giving to those uh, radiologists entering neuro today? So what I would say is that the thing that really benefited me was trying to identify a focus early in my career that I could direct my research efforts and my educational efforts towards. Fortunately for me, it was at a time where I think I mentioned that MRI was just becoming implemented in the head and neck region. The brain and the spine were done, but CT was still dominant in the head and neck region. And my early career, the first you know, 50 publications that I made after finishing my fellowship in neuroradiology were largely about what are the benefits that MRI provides for evaluating head and neck lesions. And that included inflammatory lesions and congenital lesions and neoplastic lesions. And I had a nice body of work in that focus that um, people would 
you know, asked me to be the plenary speaker about MRI of head and neck cancer. So if you can identify where there are current gaps in knowledge and become the go-to person for that specific area, as narrow as it may be, I think it's important. That will really help you become well-known in your field as the go-to guy or gal for, you know, MRI of, you know, toe fungus, whatever it might be. So I, I think that's an important thing is, is develop a focus. The second thing I would say is go to multidisciplinary conferences. You've got to be interacting with the clinicians. You've got to be listening to what they are looking at the images for, what they're asking you to tell them about, where the tumor is, or you know what type of tumor it might be. Those are the type of questions that you get from the clinicians at multidisciplinary. You hear it again and again and again, and that leads to research. All right, well, how good are we at predicting that this is mastic adenocarcinoma as opposed to mastic squamous cell carcinoma? They keep asking me that. We gotta do something better for that. You know, how, how good are we and what can we implement? And the third thing I would say is early on, you probably wanna decide whether your passion is clinical care, teaching, or research. It's pretty rare to have someone who is equally good at all three. And you don't have to be equally good at all three. If your passion is teaching, buy into it and go full force into it and put your eggs into that basket and put your energy to it. If, if your passion is new technology and development, you know, go that route. Um, trying to, you know, be great in everything, I think is very difficult. It's for the very few. And um, therefore I recommend that you kind of look inside yourself and say, what do I love the most? What gets me excited about coming to work? Awesome. Well, it's a great place to leave it. Dr. Yusim, thanks for the time. It was a great conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.